You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. Good morning. Okay, let's do it one more time. Good morning. Oh, that was much better. Well, I'm so glad you guys are here. My name's Laura Beth Beckner. My husband and I have been going to Hope for about three years, and we are so thankful for a church family and community where we can become and belong. Please stand for today's reading. Our passage today is Judges 8:33 through 35. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning to you. If you guys go ahead and uh, do me a favor and turn to Judges chapter 8, verse 1. We'll be in there uh, today uh, as you're turning uh, to that page, turn to somebody else and say, uh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Go ahead and tell somebody it is. As you can see, we started decorating around here. How many of y'all started decorating before Thanksgiving? You guys are the overachievers, and how many of y'all uh, just started decorating right now after Thanksgiving? You guys are just getting on to it, okay? How many of y'all, like me, you're tired, maybe you've been sick or something, and you're like, I just, I'm not going to decorate for right now, or like for a little bit. How many of you guys, okay, there's a couple of y'all, okay, yes, right there with you. But yes, it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I'm excited about that. Next week, we'll be starting our Advent series, um, O Holy Night. We'll be breaking that down, and uh, it'll be just a a great time. The following week after that, December 10th, will be our Christmas night of worship. And so I encourage you to invite out some neighbors, friends, family. Uh, You don't want to miss that. It's going to be a great, great time. But uh, before we officially get into this Advent uh, series, we're going to uh, wrap up uh, chapter uh, 8 here in the book of Judges by uh, the life of Gideon. And, um, and before we do that, I want to do a quick recap for those of you who are joining us for the first time and you're kind of like, what is the book of Judges? What's, what's this all about? Well, um, the book of Judges is, it's about the people of Israel um, who have been led by Joshua into the promised land. And this is very interesting because we picked the book of Judges way back before some of the current events that's going on uh, in Israel. And it's been very interesting how God has been speaking through um, even some of this, this text. But, but, um, but Joshua had led the people into the promised land that was uh, promised way back in Genesis uh, from God to uh, Abraham and his descendants. Uh, Joshua calls them to then be faithful to their uh, covenant with God uh, once they enter into the land and to uh, by obeying the, the Torah and the commandments um, and to become a light to the nations, right? And so the book of Judges uh, begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells a story of how Israel 
fails at that, right? How they're, how they're struggling with, with that. It's a, actually, it's, it's a pretty much of a, a, a mess. It's, it's, and as we continue in the book of Judges, we're just going to see it get worse and just even messier. And, uh, and, and so, um, but the, the, book, the book's name comes from the types of uh, leaders that uh, Israel has at this uh, period of time. Before Israel has kings, uh, they have what um, we call um, judges, and not judges that we think of in a courtroom, but uh, if you think of more like um, tribal chieftains or, or leaders, these are um, what these judges are. And, um, and so for the first two chapters of this book, we see um, that the Israelites and they failed to drive out the Canaanites from the land completely. And chapters three up until now reveal this downward cycle of Israel falling into um, idolatry. They're, they're, they're starting to, since they didn't drive out the, uh, the Canaanites, uh, they start falling to temptation of, of worshiping their idols and, and, and this Baal worship. Um, do a study in the Baal worship. It is really, really gnarly. I mean, some of the stuff that uh, they, they do, the child sacrifice, it's pretty, pretty bad. And so they, they're falling into this temptation. And, and, and once they start worshiping these idols and turning away from God, uh, the, the enemies then oppress them. And uh, so they're, they're oppressed for a while, they're crying out, and God raises up these leaders, these judges who uh, help deliver them. And for a short period of time, there's peace, and then the cycle repeats over and over again. And, but each time that cycle repeats, Israel and these judges start just, it gets messier and messier. And so um, Israel's judges start off pretty good, though. Um, there's some solid leaders. Uh, we've read about uh, Ehud and, uh, and Deborah, um, some wise leadership, just some, uh, some, some, some solid leaders. And then they move into kind of okay to bad to worse. But last week, um, things were looking pretty good for Gideon. Um, Gideon had come from this kind of period where he was a, a coward, kind of just really doubting a lot of things. And, but yet God gives uh, him some reassurance to this supernatural encounter with uh, one of the uh, Midianite soldiers, one of 135,000 who were encamped against Israel. And this dream that's given to the Midianite shows that they are terrified that God and, 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 and Gideon are going to uh, come and destroy things. And it just reassures Gideon. He's on fire now. He's excited. He takes his merry band of 300, right? And, uh, and the Bible says that um, through clay pots breaking and horns blasting, and, but most of all, the power of God, the 135,000 soldiers of Midian end up turning in on one another. And there's mass hysteria. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable. 
And, and so as uh, this, they're turning on one another and uh, it looks like, man, uh, there's just a, a victory here. They have a couple of the um, Midianite generals who, who run off, um, but uh, Gideon calls the rest of Israel to come in and help out in one of the tribes of Israel, uh, Ephraim. They end up capturing uh, the two uh, generals there, and um, and yeah, and it looks like this is if it ends here, this is a big time victory. Should be high five celebration. We just end here, and this is good. Unfortunately, though, the story continues, <laughs> and the story really highlights and continues to highlight Gideon and his character. And it's this tale of two stories here of Gideon. And, and we're going to start to see that as you take a closer look at, at Gideon's character, it begins to kind of spiral downward and setting the tone for the rest of the judges and the people of Israel in the book. And, and so in chapter 8 alone, we will see Gideon goes from this savvy statesman to questionable behavior and eventually leads to Israel and idolatry and it's 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 a it's a mess here. So let but here's the bottom line that um, we're going to uh, highlight here from this passage, and it's this: that as followers of Christ, we are called to both talk the talk and walk the walk. As followers of Christ, we're called to both talk the talk and walk the walk. Let's go ahead and look at Judges eight verse one. It says. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged Gideon vigorously. Verse 2, but he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's uh, grapes better than the full grape harvest of uh, Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. So what's going on here? Well, we see um, Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, they are, they're upset, they're heated. Uh, And uh, why they're upset is really can be marked down to this, this is prideful. They are uh, chomping at the bit to fight, so to speak, and, and, and they feel like Gideon has snubbed them, that they're just kind of now being called in to the battle, they're, they're, and they're going to miss the glory of what has taken place here uh, with Israel. And so they're upset, and they're pressing Gideon uh, of, of, you know, why he did this to them. And, but we see uh, that Gideon takes care uh, to choose all of his words very selectively, and it shows this, you know, kind of diplomacy uh, that's going on here. Taking to heart Proverbs 15.1, which says that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. He offers this kind of four-dimensional response to uh, Ephraim. He starts off um, with this rhetorical question. He minimizes his own role in 
this battle in comparison to theirs. Second, he flatters them. And, you know, uh, the tribe of Ephraim with a proverb, uh, he gives this rhetorical question of, you know, uh, you know what, what good is it, the full harvest of Abiezer, which is the, the clan that, um, that Midian is from, compared to the gleanings of Ephraim. In other words, like, Man, you're, you, you got it all, man. You, you, you really uh, were able to take home the prize. You took care of these generals of uh, Zeb and, and, and Oreb. And man, what, what do we have against you? And so he's pacifying the situation. And it continues. He acknowledges that God's, God has rewarded them and their contribution. And, uh, and lastly, he minimizes himself. And so it kind of seems like he's, some savvy character going on here, right? How many of you guys know when sometimes when we're being pressed with uh, some situation of people being prideful, uh, it's best to respond back with a gentle answer than um, getting uh, super uptight because it stirs the pot. How many of you guys have been there before, right? And so, so there's wisdom here, uh, and, and, and so it, look, it looks good. But let's go forward because there's some questionable uh, character being showed here in Verse four through nine, it says this, Gideon and his 300 men exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkoth, give my troops some bread. They are worn out and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zamuna, the kings of Midian. So there's the kings are, there's still kings that are uh, running away and he wants to take them out. But the officials of Sukkoth said, do you already have the hands of Ziba and Zamuna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? And then Gideon replied, just for that, I'm going to whoop your, right? Like he's like, you can see, you can hear it in his tone, right? Like he's just like, I'm, I'm going to tear your flesh. I'm, I'm going to beat you with some desert thorns and briars. Like when I get them, like, it's not going to be good. And so then he moves on to uh, Peniel, uh, another part of the tribes of, of, of Israel. And he makes the same request to them, hoping for a more favorable answer. But they reply the same way. And he's like, look, I'm going to tear, I'm going to tear this thing down. Like he's, he's, he's pretty fired up. And, and guess what? I'm reading this. I'm kind of heated too. I'm like, Man, these are his tribesmen. This is Israel. They, he knows he's going after uh, their enemy. Why are they not helping out. I'm kind of digging a little bit. Maybe, maybe it's fear. Maybe they're fearful that the Midianites who have 120,000 or 30,000 soldiers and he has only 300 that they're going to, you know, uh, come back and, and, and attack them or whatnot. But man, you see that there is, um, there's tension, right? There's still continual tension going on here and disunity among the tribes. And so verses 10 through 12, it, it begins to describe how Gideon and their men, they press forward and they eventually surprise attack these two Midianite kings and they capture them. And this is, this is just a, 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 you know incredible uh, work that's being done here. And what do you think happens after they capture these two kings? What do you think Gideon does? He brings them back to Sukkoth back to Peniel, and uh, he has some not-so-friendly uh, words to say to them. This is what it says, verse 13. says, Gideon, son of Joash, 
then returned from the battle by the pass of Eres. He caught a young man of Sukkoth, and he questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of 77 officials of Sukkoth. He's taking down names right now. He's like, I'm about to whoop these people, right? So he gets their names. And then Gideon came and said to the men of Sukkoth, here they are. Got them. You're taunting me. You're saying, yeah, we weren't going to get them. Guess what? I got their hands right here. And when I was asking for food, what did you have for me? You were taunting me, saying it's not going to happen. And the Bible says that he teaches the men of Sukkoth a lesson. But it doesn't stop there. It says that in verse 17 that he then pulls down the tower of Peniel, which he said he was going to do. And then he kills all the men of the town. Kills them. Takes them out. And things are getting a little bit questionable here, right? First, you're kind of like, you know, thinks it's justifiable to you know, come back and teach them a lesson or whatever. But he's, now he's killing his own tribesmen. And this is uh, a far, this is a side of a Gideon that seems a lot different than this diplomatic leader that we saw earlier in this chapter. Things are getting questionable here. And then we move on to verse 22, and we clearly see that although Gideon is talking the talk, his walk is getting really convoluted, and, and, and there's some, at least there's some serious consequences here as we continue in verse 22. And we pick up here. It says, the Israelites said to Gideon, after they've taken care of the Midianites, they tell Gideon, they're asking, Gideon, hey, rule over us, your, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Verse 23 said, but Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder, which was a custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. And they answered, we'll be glad to give them to you, uh, so that they spread out the uh, garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings that he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, pendants, and the purple garments worn by king, the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on the camel's necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he, played in, uh, which he placed in Orpha, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Man, so what's going on here? Well, Gideon's response in verses 23 through 27 divides into two parts. First part is his verbal response to the offer. Uh, for kingship, and then it's his talk, right? And, and then a nonverbal response or his walk, verse 24 through 27. The former looks like a straightforward rejection of uh, becoming king uh, that they, from the Israelites' proposal. You know, choosing his words carefully and casting his answer as a solemn triple assertion that he categorically rejects this opportunity to be the, the founder of Israel's first dynasty in Israel. 
and his rationale is theologically correct. This is, this is actually the, the right answer, right? Because according to Deuteronomy 17, uh, God gives Moses the instructions to Israel that when they do decide to have a king, as he knows they're going to try to have a king, he gives them some stipulations to that. Number one, that they shouldn't be foreigners. Uh, number two, they shouldn't be acquiring large masses of, of gold. They shouldn't uh, be going back to Egypt to, 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 uh, to get uh, fortified with their, their uh, the animals there and horses. And they shouldn't be um, having a, a, a bunch of wives. And so there's just a lot of these different stipulations. One of them also was that this has got to be God specifically calling a person to the kingship. Right? This can't be just, oh, we're just going to pick some whoever we think is cool, and then they're, they're going to be king. And so Gideon, on the surface, it seems like, man, he's, he's talking the talk. Like he, he is, his rationale is theologically sound. Far be it from him to usurp the role of Yahweh, right? Uh, the only true ruler over Israel. And, uh, and it seems like good talk. However, the issue is not that simple. As we see, Gideon appears to have deferred to Yahweh, but after looking at his response a little closer, you begin to realize, man, um, he's not even, he's not correcting the Israelites. What do I mean by that? I mean, because the Israelites, they come to Gideon, they say, you have saved us. What Gideon should have responded is like, no, I had clay pots and horns <laughs> that we used to, uh, to fight this battle. Really, it was the Lord who saved us, right? If you go back a, a chapter, God makes clear, like he, he establishes 300 men that, that, that this is going to be a, a victory that he's the one that should be getting the glory. This should be bringing the attention, the glory back to the Lord. And Gideon is not exactly shutting that down. And then here's where his walk fails to line up with his talk. And just, just follow with me here because we're getting to a, a point. Trust me. He turns down the offer by being the king, but his first request, he asks, hey, can y'all hook me up with some gold? <laughs> right? He's like, I'm not going to be king, but hook me up with some gold. And, and, and that request is, it's pretty significant in two accounts. On one hand, requesting gifts from each of his men, Gideon demanded a symbolic gesture of submission. This is basically like the a lord and vassal relationship. This is king and servant, like, like that's, that's what kings do. And then uh, the amount of gold Gideon receives takes on the character of a royal treasure. 1,700 shekels of gold amounts to 43 pounds of gold. This is indeed a treasure fit for a king. So he's like, no, no, I don't, I'm not going to be your king, but I want the money of a king, right? Hook me up with that. And then next you see Gideon retained 
this king's symbols of royalty, the, the crescent amulets worn by the camels, which is a sign of the, the Midianites that, that showed royalty. And, and when Gideon kills the kings, he takes those uh, amulets um, and those pendants and the purple robes that were formerly worn by the Midianite kings. And, and it's, again, showing that he's saying one thing, but he's doing another. Third, Gideon assumes a king's role as a sponsor of this of a cult by crafting an ephod and erecting it in his city, uh, Ophrah. And so if you guys know anything about the um, where an ephod is, is mentioned, it's in, mentioned in the Levitical priesthood, and it's it's supposed to be a sacred uh, uh, um, uh, priestly um, uh, garment um, that is not just meant to be created out of nowhere and just kind of willy-nilly mess around with. But, but here he takes the gold and he forms an ephod and he puts it in his hometown. And what makes things even more interesting is that according, accordingly, the word of ephod here represents not only the garment that clothed the sacred image, but also the image over which the garment was draped, which became an object of worship by the Israelites, so what, to the point where they were prostituting themselves over it. Some commentators say that the object that he puts this ephod over is uh, erecting the same idol that Yahweh had asked him to remove a couple chapters ago. There is some questionable things going on here, right? And then it doesn't stop there. It continues. Verse 29 says, Drew Baal, this is his, uh, his Canaanite uh, name uh, before he was uh, given the name of Gideon. Uh, son of Joash went back home to live. So Gideon goes back to home to live. And he has 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine who, concubine who lived in Shechem also bore him a son, who he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash, and Ophrah of the Abarezrites. See, Gideon establishes a large harem. He does exactly what he shouldn't be doing or a king of Israel should not be doing and is uh, very much uh, reflective of the culture, the pagan idolic culture of the Canaanites at the time. And he has a bunch of kids. Basically, again, he's kind of acquiring in, in this large number of, of, of prodigy and, 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 and kingship. And, and so the number of his sons are 70, which sounds like an idealized number. And in fact, um, the author may have included this number because it reflects some of what the mythological text of the time discovers that the Canaanite god Baal had 70 sons. And so again, you're like, what is going on here? And lastly, the name of his son, Abimelech, can be interpreted in several ways, but one way is a not so subtle one that continues to highlight the disconnect from Gideon's talk and his walk. Why? Because Abimelech can be interpreted as the son of the king. The son of the king. 
some of you are like, okay, what's the point here? Like what, you're talking a lot about getting here. We're looking at his care. Like why does it matter about him being king or not being king? Well, it matters a lot. His, there's, there's a big disconnect here and it's showing this, the aspect of, of Israel and their leadership are slipping more and more back into idolatry. And there's this a disconnect between his words and his actions. And it leads the nation of Israel plunging back into idolatry. And the cycle of corrupt judges seems to get even worse and worse. And he begin to think about this. And he asked the question, what, how does this apply to us? What does that even matter to us? And, and I think that we have to ask a question that comes to mind. And it's this. In a culture filled with moral depravity and sin-inducing pressures that we all live in, how have you and I been tempted to divide our talk from our walk? How have we been tempted to divide our talk from walk? Because if we're being honest, we're looking at this honestly, man, we see that what is happening to Gideon is not so far different than the temptations that you and I can uh, fall into as people of God. Right? Where it's the, the, their talk and our walk is not really lined up as it should be. How often are we following through on our word? Right? If we say we're going to make it to an event, a life of integrity will give uh, personal comforts and fulfill that promise. And if we take a longer pause at, at, at maybe some of the, the commitments that we have, are we really actually going to fulfill them? If we talk the talk and we walk the walk, we speak up when we see something wrong, whether it be in our culture, our workplaces, or our homes. This is tough, isn't it? Why? Man, because... If we're honest, sometimes our talk and our walk does not line up. And a lot of times it gets called out at home. How many of y'all have been there before, right? At home and talking to all the husbands and wives here, especially, right? We, uh, our spouses have an a inside scoop into whether or not our talk and our walk is being lined up, right? Whether we like it or not, Right? And just to be real, man, we have some had some real talks with with my wife before, man. We just had some real talks to say, hey, look, you're saying one thing, but you're doing uh, another, and it's not so fun, right? But the reality is, is that it matters. It does matter, doesn't it? Integrity matters. This is an issue of integrity here that we see in this passage. We're seeing the guy that God is highlighting, he's revealing, he's seeing that this, this, this Gideon and focusing on his character shows on this victory and everybody's yay. But, but the reality is things start slipping and his talk, it sounds good, but his walk is really not matching up. It's a matter of integrity. So what does the Bible talk about when we say about Integrity. Proverbs, Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. 
Luke 16.10 says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little can also be dishonest with much. For we, Second Corinthians 8.21, For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. Integrity matters. Our talk and our walk matters. If we are destroyed by our duplicity our, or deceitfulness, then living a life of consistency and honesty will protect us. If we can be trusted with a little, God will bless us with opportunities for increased blessings. If we strive to keep our word and do what is right, then people will see us working for God and not for men. They'll see the light of Christ in our lives. Our talk and our walk. Think about it. This is a, this is a passage that, man, it, it, again, it also challenges especially leadership because we see Gideon in the place of, of leadership and, and we see what happens when his talk and his walk are, are, are not lined up. It really leads the people astray. And, it, and it's a sobering reminder to myself, but this is on general, all of us that our talk and our walk matters. Near the end of his earthly life, Jesus says, Father, if, you're, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, let your will be done, Right? Not my will, but your will be done. See, Jesus lives out the ultimate example of integrity, right? He stays committed to the Father, even uh, and God's promises to all mankind, despite the personal distress that uh, he endures. Jesus was a man of his word, amen? How many of y'all thankful that Jesus was a man of his word? that he lived a life of integrity, that when he said something, he meant it, that he followed through with what he was, uh, he was about, right? And, and so this is not easy, right? This is not easy, but, but here's the truth. God doesn't call us to the easy, does he? God doesn't call us to easy. He calls us to be Christ-like, as his church. He calls us to be Christ-like and he calls us to talk the talk and walk the walk. Emulating humility, love, and selflessness of Jesus is anything but easy. However, it's important, right? When we demonstrate it, when we, when, as the church, when, and again, this is not about perfection, this is not about perfection here. And this is not about earning God's love or earning salvation. And if you're here this morning, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter how uh, uh, faithful or integrity that you walk with. The reality is you are out of relationship with a holy and righteous God that cannot be covered and bridged except through the, the, the righteous king, the, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. 
who fulfilled all of righteousness, who is faithful and in and, and all of his way. But as the church, as, as followers of Christ, those who have been born again with his people, he calls us to emulate, to, to model his son, to reflect his son who talked the talk and walked the walk. And as the band comes out here and we look at Gideon's story, man, it illustrates this fact that, man, we need to be on guard against that temptation because there's a temptation in our culture, there's a temptation in our world that, that says you can kind of just climb the corporate ladder, you can kind of say what you want, do what you want, kind of get by, and, and really a lot of it is celebrated, and, and sometimes you get promotions by, by saying one thing and doing another thing, but that's not what the kingdom of God looks like. That's not what Christ looks like. And, 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 and therefore, we are called to be on guard against this temptation. It says it's okay to kind of let what you, you talk and your walk to be disconnected. And so as a passage that I, I, I look to that has been encouraging for, for me in regards to um, just temptation in general, it's actually a passage that I was reading from um, uh, this, uh, this book um, that comes from a man that showed an incredible amount of integrity throughout his ministry, and it's Billy Graham. Billy Graham, as you know, Man, he traveled around a lot. There was a, um, man, there was a tremendous amount of pressure and, and weight on him as a leader. And he was far from perfect. Just ask his wife, right? Um, but the reality is he managed to live and to model uh, a ministry that was free from large scandals, and one of the major things he says in his book is he says to memorize this passage in First Corinthians ten. But he and but one of the, the three things kind of he safeguards himself as he says, stay away from the girls, the gold, and the glory. Right? Stay away from the, the girls, the gold, and the glory. What do we see here with Gideon? The gold, give me some of the earrings. The girls has over multiple wives and the glory, which he should have said from the get-go, I didn't save y'all. This was the Lord's victory. I like, before we uh, read 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I love this uh, quote regarding our our walk and our talk. It's John Maxwell. He says this. He says, your talk talks and your walk talks but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. <laughs> Did you guys get that? I got tongue-tied before. And this is, <laughs> I'm gonna say that again for those of you still waking up. Your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. What's this about? It's about integrity. It's about following through with your word. It's about living a a life of integrity in a world that is in desperate need of it. 
It's about being a people in a, in a journey of becoming and belonging who is pursuing after Jesus, looking to him as our model for life and ministry and knowing that as we pursue him and as we desire to follow in his footsteps, we're going to miss it at times for sure. We are on this side of heaven. There is no such thing as a perfection until we see Jesus face to face. But thank God we serve the Jesus. We serve a king, a high king who is faithful and just and gracious and merciful to us. That when we miss it and we go to him, because we're going to miss it, he's not going to respond rashly, right? As Gideon did. He's not, he's not going to then come down upon us and, and, and start uh, uh, chastising and condemning. No, this king, this, this king of kings, this Jesus who went before us, who, who lived this life of, of, of integrity. He, no, he offers grace upon grace. He does. He's the king that when you come to him humbly, acknowledging, being real with where you're at, having some real talk with him, he says, I see that. Now let me give you some grace and some strength. Let me, let me give you the ability to actually say no to some things. Let, let me comfort you and know that, yeah, when you missed it, my son, Jesus, I, I, he never missed it. And you're covered by that righteousness. But listen, this isn't about earning salvation. This is about truly living out this walk with God, talking this talk, walking this walk of faith, this relationship with him so that the world would see a better way, that the world would point, us, point the world to the true king who will return and who with all accounts will be laid bare before him. Jesus is the, is the faithful king. And, 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 and I love this word. Let's, let's see what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 13, that I think it just helps ground us and encourages us as we, as we uh, take these steps to be a people that both talk the talk and walk the walk and, and flee from temptation. He says this, says these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted more than you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. couple things as we wrap up. One, everyone faces temptation. Every single one of us. So don't feel like you're being singled out when <laughs> you're being called out for not allowing your talk and your walk to, to line up, right? Everybody's, everybody has been tempted. And we're not alone. Number two, others have resisted temptation and so can you. 
well, Pastor Matt, I, can't, I, just, I just struggle with somebody. I just, I'm just going to keep going. No, 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 no. You can resist it. We can live lives of integrity. We can. Number three, any temptation can be resisted because God will show you the way to resist it. God will help you recognize the people, the situations that's kind of giving you trouble, help you to run from anything that you know is wrong and running to the feet of Jesus. Running from a tempting situation is your first step on your way to victory. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want us to take a moment here. want us to take a moment of some honest reflection. I want us to take a moment to ask ourselves, where has our talk and our walk been disconnected? And I don't want you to allow the enemy to throw condemnation or, 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 or there's a deep shame of the hour. I just, just want to be real talk before a loving heavenly father, before a king who understands and empathizes with our weaknesses. But it's important that we have some real talk here. We, we examine our hearts. Where has our talk and our walk been disconnected? Because that matters to Jesus. And that matters on your job. And it matters at home with our relationships and this journey of becoming belonging. And I want you to just begin to realize that you have a faithful, faithful, faithful God whose righteousness whose faithfulness, whose promises you can lean into, that when you fail, when you miss the mark, you have a high king who loves you and who is ever present to empower you to live and to move in the direction that he's called you to live. He's ready and willing to forgive you as you come before him. Father, I thank you I thank you for your word. I thank you for your promises. I thank you for, for, for even for Israel, for how, that, how you have been faithful to Israel and it shows that you've been faithful. You'll be faithful to us, Lord. But it also reveals, Lord, how desperately we are in need to be a people that clings to the cross, that clings to your hope and your forgiveness and your righteousness and your faithfulness that apart from you, we can do no good work and we will certainly will not live lives of integrity. And so God, I ask for a healing over a broken hearts here this morning. I pray God for, uh, for a grace to cover uh, the areas that, uh, the, that we have missed it, Lord. I pray that we would be a people 
Lord, that, that uh, community, Jesus, that, that, that walks the walk and talks the talk, and that when uh, others see us, they know that it's not us, but it's Christ in us that, that leads us in this path of righteousness for his namesake, and that, that wins people to the cross rather than pushing them away because they see uh, just another group of people that, that say one thing and does another. Lord Jesus, may that far be it from us, Lord. Far be it from us to think it's acceptable to just to talk one way and to live another way. But Lord, help us to be enamored by you, Jesus, and knowing that when we miss the mark, Lord, as we come before you, you are gracious, Kai King, who will lead us back to where we need to be, back to your heart be a light to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week. 